country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would be like Sodom and, had, and would be like more like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who have required this from your hand to trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths and the callings of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you may make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Chapter 1, verse 16. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. And you know this verse. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so, Father, tonight... As we start this amazing book, as we start this hard-hitting book that, that is just as relevant for today as it was when it was written some 1,700 or 2,700 years ago. Lord, we too fall into many of these categories. Forgive us. Lord, I lift to you uh, these friends that are in this audience. I lift to you these friends that are online. I, I lift up to you, Meg and James. I lift up to you those that sacrifice their time like Isaac. Instead of being outside with his son, with his daughter, he was in here leading us in worship. I, I lift up to you, my friends, uh, John and Jeff in the back, who, who sacrificed their time so that every single one 
of these uh, messages can go forth and, and the audio and the technical can work despite all the, the problems that they face, it seems like every single week. Bless them, Lord. We lift up to you our pastors. We lift up to you Mike Atkinson. We lift up to you Mike Butler. We lift up to you Pastor Mike Pospermuna. And of course, we lift up to you Pastor Mike Ostheimer, Lord. We ask that you would give them wisdom in leading this church. We lift up to you our elders, uh, Ron and Larry, Lord. We ask that you would just guide them, protect them, keep them safe, help them to be able to uh, focus on you, that their prayer times and their fastings would be for you. Lord, we ask that you would put a hedge of protection around this place tonight, that the enemy who is no knowingly trying to attack tonight on purpose would be thwarted, Lord. And Lord, help us to examine ourselves as we approach you in communion tonight, that we too would understand that the meaning of this passage is exactly the same as it was during the time of Isaiah. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Last year we were in the book of Psalms. And then at the beginning of this year, we were in the book of Proverbs. We finished Ecclesiastes. And then last week we had the privilege of ending on Song of Solomon. A three-week study in a, in a beautiful new relationship, the honeymoon phase. <clears throat> but tonight, we're starting a new book, the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, like I said before, is 66 chapters. It is the second longest, only two psalms itself in length. It is the largest of the prophets, the beginning of a new section in the Bible called the major prophets, which will end with the minor uh, prophets. And if you want to learn the minor prophets, by the way, come on Wednesday mornings. We're in the book of, of Amos. You'll get a preview to where we'll be in about two or three years. Yes, I know. Thank you. <clears throat> it starts off in the first verse with the time period that Isaiah is living in. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of uh, Judah. Isaiah had the privilege of prophesying and counseling and going to four different kings. The second longest king in the history of Israel, Uzziah himself. 55 years he would reign. And if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, especially chapter 6, and I won't spoil chapter 6 for you, uh, but it is an absolutely amazing privilege to be able to open up the Bible and read from Isaiah. And to imagine these kings hearing the prophecies of Isaiah in their own language right in front of them. And yet at the same time denouncing every word. You see, Uzziah reigned longer than David. Uzziah reigned longer than King Solomon. It was a time of revival for a short period of time until the end of Uzziah's life. 
And I won't spoil what will happen. We'll find that out in a couple of weeks. And then there was Jotham and Ahaz who come next. And they're horrific kings. They're wicked in all their ways. Each of them reigned for 16 years. And then there was Hezekiah. Hezekiah, during his life, for the most part, up until about 12 years before he died, brought reformation, revival to the nation of Judah. Until his heart fell away from the Lord. And he had a son by the name of Manasseh, who was the worst king in Judah's history. The longest reigning king in Judah's history. And Isaiah, he's here for all these times, all four of these kings. Probably starting about a decade before Uzziah died until the time when King Hezekiah dies. A period of approximately 70 years. And if he was 20 years old when he started his ministry, how old would he have been when he accomplished the end of his ministry? You know, about 90 years old. And so as we go through the book of Isaiah, it is a hard ministry that Isaiah is given. And he doesn't start out sugarcoating anything. How does he start out describing the nation of Judah? It says there in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought you up children, and they rebelled against me. What is it like to have to discipline your children? What does it mean to have to discipline your children? And these are the chosen people of God. And these are the people that God brought out of bondage in Egypt and brought through uh, the wilderness uh, unwillingly every step of the way. People are dying, those over the age of 20, except for Caleb and Joshua, those in the wilderness. And then throughout the book of Judges, what are they doing? They're seeking after idols. And then after the death of King Solomon, what happens to the kingdom? The kingdom is fractured. There's civil war. The nation of Israel in the north, the nation of Judah in the south, until the very time when they're exiled into Assyria and then Babylon. This is what it's like to have to warn a rebellious people, a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. And Isaiah gets this job. He describes it in many, many different ways. Hopefully, one of these ways, someone will grasp the meaning. And all of us need to understand this ourselves. Because in verse 3, it says, The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people. My people do not even consider. What is it saying about the people of Israel? A donkey's more obedient than you. The animals are more obedient than you. They at least know where to go at the end of the day. My people do not know me. They don't even observe me. They don't even consider me, Isaiah says. Alas, 
a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. This word iniquity is used many, many times throughout the scriptures. It means purposely choosing to disobey. And this is what the people of Israel are doing. It describes their iniquity in the rest of that verse. A brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backwards. And in angles, what is this? In degrees, what is this? 180 degrees. The opposite direction. They have purposely chosen to go apart from God. They have purposely chosen to disobey God. You see, nature knows its creator. Nature knows who's the one that has given them life. But the people of Israel at this time do not even acknowledge him. Why should you be stricken again? That word stricken literally means paddled, spanked. You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints from the sole of the foot, even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. How does God describe sin in a person's life that is going in the opposite direction of him? As this sore that's oozing pus. As this uh, you know, sickness in a person's life that's slowly killing them. This is what iniquity does. This is what sin does in a person's life. Verse 7, it continues on. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged uh, city. We just finished the book of Song of Solomon. And how did it describe the cucumber fields? How did it describe these beautiful, sweet-smelling uh, gardens? It was a place where the bride and the groom can go away to escape, right? And how is it describing it now? The honeymoon's over. Discipline is coming to the nation of Israel. Instead of having places of safety, places of romance, places of sweet-smelling beauty, now they're running and hiding from the presence of God. Verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? You know this story. Abraham's nephew, Lot, was in Sodom and Gomorrah, in this beautiful city at that time, by the way. And what happened to those beautiful cities? Because of sin in the midst of them. 
fire from heaven comes down and literally destroys these cities. So much so that as Lot and his two daughters and his wife are running away, his wife looks back, backward, 180 degrees. What happens to her? She turns into a pillar of salt. And who is he comparing to Sodom and Gomorrah? The nation of Judah. The people of God. The children of God. This is who he's comparing the nation of Judah to. Sodom and Gomorrah themselves. But unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, what has God always promised to do with the nation of Israel and Judah? That there would always be a remnant. And just like if you read the book of Ezekiel, and by the way, come to Monday nights, we're going through the book of Ezekiel. The theme is watchmen, being observant, being watchful, warning of the signs that are happening even now. There's a remnant that's chosen. There's always a remnant that's tied to, just as in the case of Ezekiel, to his robe, in the case of God, in his hand. The very presence of the remnant of Israel always protecting uh, them. In verses 10 and 11, our story continues. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What is God describing the nation of Judah as? Acting just like Sodom and Gomorrah. A acting just like those people that had chosen to disobey God and go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. How easy is it to fall into the traditions into the religiosity, into the ruts of coming to church. You see, I grew up in a, a small churches my whole life. And I remember one of the pastors that I had, he, he described a, a religious service as a rut. And a rut is just a grave with the ends extended out to infinity. What happens when you get into a rut? What happens when you get into a routine of religiosity? Is the personal relationship fresh? Oh yes, we can have the face and the facade. Oh yes, we can have the right words to say to one another. Oh yes, we can raise our hands at the right places or, or know the choruses or, or know the words to say to one another. <clears throat> but do we today, 2021, have a relationship with God? Because God hates, God hates the facade. God hates the religiosity without the personal relationship with him. 
It describes it this way. And of course, the Israelites, the, the people of Judah, they would sacrifice these animals. And, and they, you know, for many all intents and purposes, uh, they, they wanted to do this because it was an outward sign of something that they were trying to do in the presence of God, this sacrifice. But in verse 12, God sees their hearts. And by the way, God still sees people's hearts. He sees my heart. He sees your hearts. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? To trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies I cannot endure your iniquity and the sacred meeting. And that's the key right there. Because if we come into this building and we leave the same exact way, why are you here? And I'm grateful for you. I mean, you guys come. You guys are the ones that are here getting convicted. You guys are the ones that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I understand that it's easy not to show up. Because then you don't have to listen. You can watch baseball or something like that. You can watch, you know, some show on TV or, or you know, enjoy a hobby or whatever. But you're here. And that's the first step. You're here willing to listen to the Word of God. You're here willing to be pricked by the Holy Spirit. You're here willing to learn. And I'm grateful for you. You are examples. But the two cannot be mixed. Iniquity and the sacred meeting. Iniquity and church. Iniquity and the temple. It cannot mix. They, they must be separated. We must, as we come to the communion altar, and know that I need to examine my heart. I need to examine my heart. Because what if we take of it in a sinful manner? We'll find that out at the end of tonight. Continues on, verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates, God is saying this, they are trouble to me, I am weary of bearing them. Can you imagine God saying this about the church service? When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Oh, this is hard to read. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Why? Your hands are full of blood. They take advantage of the poor, as Amos says. They take advantage of the widows, as Ezekiel says. They take advantage of those that are destitute among them. And then they walk into the temple with their nice sheep or their nice lamb or their nice cow. And they sacrifice and think God is going to forgive them of their sins. And then they go out and they do the same thing the next day. What happens when I push the grace of God? 
rather than understanding that we need to change our ways. As it says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. What does God want? God wants us to turn 180 degrees to him and repent of our ways. And we can say, oh yes, that was written 2,700 years ago. But is this as relevant today as it was then? Verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. What does God want? People that are willing to obey him. This is what God wants from his people. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. What does God want from us? He doesn't want the facade, and it's so easy to do. I grew up in church. I know the right words to say. What does God want? He wants us to repent. He wants us to come back to him. He wants our private lives to echo our religious lives. He wants us to have hearts that have been changed. And what is God willing to do when we repent? He's willing to wash us clean. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Can you imagine that? The stains of sin completely washed away. What is it like to be clean? And thank God he does forgive. And thank God his grace is unending. Thank God for that. Even enough to wash away the facade. Even enough to wash away the stink of our religiosity. Even enough to wash away all the things that weigh us down in this life. All the lies of the enemy that he brings against us, that accuses us of things that we've done. Can God wash away all of it? Yes, he can. But verse 19 and 20 sums it up perfectly. If you are willing and obedient, how must you come to God? How must you approach the throne? As we're going to find out in chapter 6, and I hope you're here in two or three weeks for this, because it's going to be absolutely amazing. What is it like to come to the very throne of God where those mighty angels, those cherubim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I come before him and I look at myself and I am not even a little bit holy. Who is the one that makes us holy? Who is the one that washes us and cleanses us of all of our sins, no matter how stained we are? It is God and God alone. 
If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. I mean, this has been repeated throughout the Old Testament since the time of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. God had promised that if they obeyed God, they would dwell in the land and they would be blessed. And if they didn't obey God, as verse 20 says, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the word of the Lord has spoken. This isn't the first time that God has described these, uh, these problems that are going to be coming, these punishments that are going to be coming, the people that are going to be coming and destroying the nation of Israel and then the nation of Judah. It had been predicted all the way back to the time of Moses itself, some 500 years before. Over and over and over again, God says and warns, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, there will be cursing. And then verse 21. He says this amazing phrase. And, and notice the exclamation point at the end. How the faithful city has become a harlot. I love the prophets. They don't mince any words. And just like when you read the book of Hosea, and by the way, the book of Hosea is the most romantic book in the whole Bible. Uh, you know, just absolutely amazing, the love of God for his people. But he doesn't mince words. What does he say? You were once faithful to me as a beautiful bride. I was in love with you. You were in love with me. And now, what are you acting like? An unfaithful wife a harlot, a prostitute. It was full of justice. It was full of righteousness lodged in it. But now murders, your silver has become dross. Your wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come uh, before them. What is it like to live in Israel during uh, this time? What is it like to live in a land where people with every single part of their being are rebelling against God? And instead of refining their lives, Instead of scraping the dross off, what are they like now? The most, the, the least valuable part of the metal. The part of the metal that is refuse that would be scraped off of the silver or the gold or the valuable metal. And this is how God is describing the nation of Judah. You're just like dross. You're just like the worst part of silver that should be just thrown away. You're, you're not like the gold ring. You're like the refuse. In fact, it continues on and it gets worse. <clears throat> I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. How does God want us to act? How does God want us to come before him? How does God want us to approach him? No longer 
as a city that is described as being purged away or taken away as the dross, but now as a city of what? Righteousness, a faithful city. Verse 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice and her penitence uh, with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth tree, those places where they would go and they would worship their idols, which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. Rather than choosing God, they choose these little idols that they have made with their own hands, maybe out of wood, maybe out of silver, maybe out of gold, uh, choosing to refine the idol, but leave their God behind. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender and the work of it as a spark, but both will burn together and no one shall quench them. And again, I say, the honeymoon is over. What is happening to the garden? Being burned. What is happening to the garden that was once new back in the Song of Solomon, beautiful and smelling and, and, and all those beautiful perfumes of the flowers and the fruits and the pomegranates, right? Oh, the pomegranates. I remember those from the Song of Solomon. What has happened to the trees? What has happened to the fruit? What has happened to the garden? It's dying. Why? Because of sin. Because of purposely choosing to disobey God. You see, even as the chosen people of God, they have chosen iniquity and they want those things that destroy rather than build. And they would rather kill than grow. Chapter 2, verse 1, the word of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Again, this phrase that will be repeated over and over and over again. And this word, the word literally means burden. It's a burden that is put on the prophet until they give it away. You felt this before, I can guarantee it. You saw a person on the side of the road. God convicted you. Holy Spirit touched you on the back of the neck. Said, Go back. Take care of them. Maybe a person on the side of the road that their car was broken down. Or someone in the church that needed a ride. Or someone that needed whether it was just a meal. And God convicted you. And said, go and do that. He placed a burden on your heart. And when will he take that burden away? There's only one time he will do that. When you go and do what he tells you to do. And you felt it before. I felt it before. This is what Isaiah is understanding. The word of God. This burden that is placed upon his shoulders. Until he speaks it to the nation. It says the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, say concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house or the Lord's house shall be established on the tops of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations 
shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of, ja of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. And out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Israel. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords and the plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And what is God's purpose for Israel? Just as it was when he chose Abraham some 3,000 years before to be a blessing to the nations, to be a light to the world. And what had Israel done? Disobeyed. But will God come back to Israel? Does God still love Israel even today? And we can apply this to ourselves, of course. Because what are we supposed to be? Jesus said it very clearly. You're supposed to be a light on a hill. You're supposed to be salt of the earth. You're supposed to have flavor. And you're supposed to be a shining light in a dark world that is thirsting for me. This is our call also. And of course, this is speaking of the millennial kingdom. You can read that in chapters 40 through 47 of the book of Ezekiel. Or you can just come on Monday night. Uh, verse 5, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And of course, you know, this is the same thing that we read earlier in chapter 1. What does God want with us? A relationship. Just as Enoch, when he walked with God every single day until he was not. Does God want a relationship with us? Yes, he does. But verse 6, he must warn, for you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. What are the people of Israel, what are the people of Judah acting like, just like everybody else around them? There's no difference between them and the Philistines. There's no difference between them and the rest of the Arab nations. There, there's no difference between how they act and the surrounding nations. And what do you describe a people like that? Are they a light? No, they're blending in. They look like everybody else. There's no distinction between them and the other people that surround them. Verse 7, God had blessed them, of course. Their land is also full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. How does it describe the chosen people of God who are supposed to be distinct, who are supposed to be light, who are supposed to be set apart, who are supposed to be holy and righteous, a, a blessing to the nations. And what are they acting like? They have their idols just like everybody else underneath their terebinth tree, their nice shaded area where they can go to 
and they can worship this idol. We do the same exact thing today. We just hold them in our hands. It's still man-made. We still devote more time to it than our God. Just different words. It continues on. I love this. Verse 9, people bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Who are they bowing down to? Not God. Verses 10 and 11, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord, Yahweh, that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and the glory of his majesty and the lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. There is constantly throughout the book of Israel a contrast between pride and humbleness all the way to chapter 66. And I challenge you this week, read a couple of chapters a day from the book of Isaiah. And, and, you know, it's okay. Go ahead to chapter 66. It's an amazing chapter. But this idea of pride versus humility is described in such great detail, even to the very forming of Satan himself, when he himself exalted himself to the presence of God and wanted the angels in heaven to worship him. Rather than being humble and seeing God exalted. And this is how the nation of Israel is acting. The nation of Israel will be humbled to the point that the only place they can look is up. They bow to their idols, but they're not willing to bow to the one who is their creator and their protector. And then this title that is given more or second most in the whole Bible, in the book of, of Isaiah, uh, 54 times you see this title that's of God here in this, in this amazing book, The Lord of Hosts. Yahweh, the commander of the armies of heaven itself. Yahweh, the one who is in charge of every single one of the armies of heaven, the angels that are armed in protection of Israel are now going to bring God's wrath. You see a picture of that during the time of Elijah when Elijah asked God to open the eyes of his servant and see around the mountains that surrounded his home, the armies of God. You see it in the book of Ezekiel, those uh, magnificent beings, the wheel was within wheels, and the beings with the four faces that constantly shout out to God, holy, 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 forever and ever and ever and ever. The majesty of the hosts of heaven commanded by one Yahweh himself. It continues on, shall come upon everything proud and lofty, the armies of heaven will come 
and bring discipline and punishment upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, and you think about these things, all these inventions of men where we try to bring a legacy to ourselves. And what will God do to all those legacies? He will bring them down. Or, verses 16 and 17, upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all the beautiful slopes, these, these beautifully designed ships, the navy of the day, the loftiness of men shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Who deserves all the glory? God does. But the idols he shall, shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and in the caves of the earth, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily, the contrast between pride and humility. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. These valuable things in his possession, he will throw away as trash, which they made each for themselves to worship to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks, into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord, from the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And as Amos says, the Lord is roaring. He's getting our, and I include us in this, I include me in this, he's getting our attention. He's getting the attention of the nation of Judah. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? You see, when I, I wrote we, but I, when I try to please men, when I, I want that little accolade, when I want that little attaboy, when I want that recognition, when I desire that more than God's praise, than God's reward, than the works of God, then he can be seen in my life. All those things that I do, they'll be forgotten. Or it'll be stolen. But what are the things that will last? And you know this, the things that we do in the name of Jesus Christ, the things that we do in the name of God, how long will those things last? Forever and ever and ever and ever. It'll be the person that has prayed for you. It'll be the person that's on their knees that'll be weighed down with all those jewels and all those crowns in heaven. And they will lay those things at the feet of Jesus Christ, knowing that he's the one that gave them to him. Chapter three, verse one, 
We're just going to read the first part here. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and there's that title again, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan and the expert enchanter. Uh, God is going to take away the best of Judah. And this is going to happen during the first exile when Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Misael are going to be taken and bondage to a foreign land, all the handsome, all the beautiful, all, all the wise and the counselors, the people that had the gifts in Israel, they're going to be stripped away and taken to the land of Babylon. I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, and every one by another, and every one by his neighbor, the child will be insolent toward the elder, and the base toward the honorable. And by the way, it's just like reading the newspaper today. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. In that day, he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. Not a single person will want to be a king, because all they're going to rule over is ruins and destruction. For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare, just like we read earlier, their sin as Sodom. Who is God equating Judah to? The most vile cities on the planet. They do not hide it, woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. And unfortunately, this too is happening today. What do you take pride in? You see it on the internet sites. You, you see it right purposely put in the center of the pages. <clears throat> and will God bring it down? Will God bring pride down? And we too can be proud, by the way. It's not just, you know, those people. It's us as well. Verse 10, say to the righteous that it shall be well with them. For they shall eat of the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. For the reward of his hands shall be given to him. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people. Those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. Who is he speaking to? Those leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders that are supposed to be standing up for what is right. And instead, they're caving in to every whim of sin. Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing is new under the sun. Verse 13, 14, and 15, the Lord stands to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your house. 
the grinding of the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, because they're proud, they walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, those covetous eyes, envying those things that they do not have, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. Does God know even the most secret of our sins? And it's so easy today. It's easy to hide the history on your browser. It, it's easy to hide those things that we want to do that, that before, you know, even just a decade ago, we had to go someplace to do. And now you can do it in your own home or even right there in front of you, mobile. Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we'll end it here. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring me wine, let us drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days shall come upon you when he shall take you away with fishhooks and your posterity with fishhooks. What is he saying? These fat cows. And by the way, <clears throat> you can uh, get the gender from the meaning of this text. Uh, there's bulls and then there's what? cows. And what are they doing? They're oppressing the poor. And God has sworn in his holiness, by the way, this is only one of two times in the whole Bible when God swears by his holiness. Look it up. The other time is in Psalms 89 verse 35. And what is he going to do to the nation of Israel? What is he going to do to the nation of Judah? Because they have not repented of their sins. He's going to lead them away with fish hooks in their cheeks in the bondage. He's going to lead them away in the things that they do not want to go to. You see, tonight we get to take communion. It may be a hard time right now. You may be convicted like me. And I, I invite all of you to, to come up as I read this next text. There, there's four different stations. And tonight, before we take this communion, as the warning is in the book of Isaiah, as the warning is throughout the scriptures, as the warning is in 1 Corinthians, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood, body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning or prioritizing the Lord's body. And tonight, before we take this, I invite you to examine yourself privately to yourself. That, that all of us, like the nation of Israel, uh, maybe you too were convicted. Maybe you too understood these sins in a personal way. Oh, 
I know I do that. And, and make sure it's about you and God, not, not the person standing next to you or the, the person that you wish were here tonight. Or, or the person that you know, if they were to listen to this, would actually be convicted. But us in this room, those of you online, that we would examine ourselves tonight. Lord, convince, convict me, convince me, convict me. Help me to repent. Help me to come back. Help, help me uh, to take away the facade. Help me to be real before you. I thank you for these, my friends. And of course, you invite us. You just want to make sure that our relationship with you is, is right now. You, you want us to communion with you, and we thank you for that. And so tonight, as we take this communion together, I ask that you would help us, help us to understand that this is something that is sacred between you and us, and us and you. That, that this isn't just some tradition that we do. That this, this isn't just for our congregation, but it's for anyone that knows you personally. And the privilege of understanding that anyone that's your child, who as we examine in the scriptures, has come into a relationship with you, is invited to partake of communion. And so 1 Corinthians, it continues on as Paul is describing this event. By the way, he wasn't there, but he's describing this event. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And so we do also tonight. Help us to remember you, Lord. And in the same manner, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And we too corporately take this juice together. And Lord, we understand that this is just a piece of bread. This is just, just a cup of grape juice. But it's sacred in the fact that you have commanded us to do it. You have invited us to come before you to examine ourselves and then to partake corporately with, with my brothers and sisters, my family, my friends. 
and be able to worship you in communion with you, that we would be real, that, that we would be vulnerable with one another, that we would understand that, that you invite us into this communion with you. Amazing thing is, in verse 26, what does it say? For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, what are you doing? Every time you get the privilege of taking this cup and this bread, what are you proclaiming? It says it right there, the Lord's death until he comes. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And just as we do every communion uh, Wednesday, as Jesus and his disciples did when they were going up to the Mount of Olives, they too sang a psalm or a hymn, as it says in Matthew and in Mark. So join with me as we sing uh, this hymn tonight. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Remember Isaiah 1. Is that exactly what it says? As white as snow, it continues on in verse 2. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I though vile as he wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. And there may I though vile as he wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransom church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransom church of God be saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds apply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die, and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. 
I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. And then a mother sweeter song. I'll sing thy power to save. And so, Father, tonight, I pray that your words, not my words, but your words, would sink deeply into our hearts, my heart tonight, today, this week. That when we open up your word, whether we read the book of Isaiah or the book of Ezekiel or or another book in the scriptures, uh, the Proverbs or the Psalms, that you would speak directly to us. That we would not be the same as when we entered this room tonight. That we would repent, that we would turn back to you. That you would wipe away, wash away all those crimson deeds that we have done. All that sin and that iniquity, the stains of our soul. And that you would wash them away. That you would replace our religiosity with a relationship that is fresh and new and precious. And so, Lord, tonight I ask that you would bless these, my friends, and my family, that you would use us for your glory, that we too would be humble and point all glory to you, that we would exalt you with all of our actions and all of our words. We love you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Thank you for coming tonight.